Welcome to the Painesville Assembly of God podcast. We're always encouraged to know God is working through this ministry to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email at info at Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. How many would answer yes? I'm a tolerant person. I'm a tolerant person. Anybody answer yes? I'm pretty tolerant of things. I'm pretty tolerant of people. Um, some of you might say, well, that depends on what it is. Am I tolerant of an annoying coworker? Right? Or annoying family member. You know, we're around the holidays now. How many have a family member you just tolerate, right? Right? Kind of depends. You know, maybe a spicy food. You know, I kind of tolerate it. Maybe bad drivers. Maybe some of us are good at tolerating them more than others are. Right? A lack of self-control or disrespect. You know, their tolerance today is a hot-button issue. How many would agree to that? The, the subject of tolerance is a hot-button issue. In fact, I think that sometimes we might answer yes, sometimes we might answer no. We might say, you know what, I'm not very tolerant. I hold to my convictions, I, I hold to my biblical, I'm not a tolerant person, I, I'm that. And then some of you might say, well, you know, like you said, it kind of depends on what it is and who it is and, and what I'm tolerant of. In fact, uh, this is a massive issue in our culture, and I believe that tolerance or the, the, the theme of being tolerant is also a massive issue in the church. And that's not to say that this is a new issue. How many know there's nothing new under the sun? (laughs) And so Jesus is going to address that in his church today, tolerance. He's going to address what that means. Now, G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton, excuse me, had this to say, tolerance is the virtue of man without convictions. So some would say that we as Christians are intolerant. Some would say that others are intolerant of us. And uh, I think what we find is it fits in what's called the plausibility structure. Anybody ever heard of a sociologist by the name of Peter Berger? Peter Berger is a sociologist. And uh, and he coined a popularized term called plausibility structure. It means that there are certain assumptions, presuppositions, um, presumptions in every culture that are so widely held that they become unquestioned, that they're unquestioned. He says, for example, if you go into an Asian culture in the context, the thought of saving face or not experiencing shame pervades or permeates everything. Decisions that are made, identities that get chosen, how lives are lived, uh, that permeates everything. But he says in the Western world, when you take a look at the Western world, that is, uh, when you take a look at, at Europe, Canada, the United States, the plausibility structure, that thing that goes unquestioned, that thing that is, that is almost highlighted as a virtue is tolerance. Tolerance. If you don't hold to an open, tolerant view where you agree with, support, embrace everyone and everything, then our society says that you're a bigot. Then you are a hater. You are somebody that has uh, uh, judgmental issues. You are very narrow-minded. You're discriminatory, you're prejudiced, you're outdated, you're primitive. How many of you think that in today's society that is a problem? Because as believers, it kind of puts us in a tough place. How can we we be loving and yet still hold to our convictions? Is there something with tolerance, intolerance? What do we tolerate? What don't we tolerate? When is it right? When is it wrong? How do we do it? Well, in our next church, that's the issue that we are going to look at is the issue of tolerance. 
As I said, we've been exploring the seven letters that were written to Jesus through the Apostle John. John was exiled again on the island of Patmos. He was imprisoned there after he had been boiled in oil and survived. They tried to kill him. They tried to martyr him. They couldn't do it. And so as a result, they decided to exile him away from everybody else, kind of put him in prison, but put him out on this island, the island of Patmos. But how many of you know that somebody can try to do whatever they want, but God will still get to you wherever you are? And God reveals himself, Jesus does in a vision. It's what we have, Revelation, the book of Revelation that we have at the end, the last book of the Bible in this compilation of books is the book of Revelation. And it's really this revelation of Jesus himself and his vision to John. And one of the things that he opens up with starting in the second chapter is he begins to tell John, write down what I say because I'm going to speak to seven of the churches that are in Asia Minor. And not only are they letters that are going to be spoken to those churches, but letters that the theme of that and the lessons that can be learned can be learned throughout churches throughout history. Because the problems are not different. The problems are the same. They just take on a little bit of a different face. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. There's nothing new under the sun. And so we've been exploring what Jesus says, and today we're in the fourth letter, the church of a city called Thyatira. Thyatira was least notable of the seven cities addressed in the book of Revelation about 40 miles east or southeast of Pergamum. That was what we looked at two weeks ago, about 50 miles from the Aegean Sea. It was known for its industry. It was a trading post in a military city. At Thyatira were trade unions of wool workers, linen workers, uh, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronzemiths. And anybody familiar, if you look at Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, there's a very important lady who Paul actually runs into in the city of Philippi, who's from the city of Thyatira, and her name is Lydia, and the Bible says that she was what? A seller of purple. She was a dyer. She was a part of that. She understood. She came out of that kind of a culture in that city, and that's going to be very important for us as a foundation to understand as we probe into what Jesus speaks to this church and the issue that they were dealing with. So let's dive in. Revelation 2, 18 to 20 says this, to the angel, that is the spiritual leader, of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate, there's that word, that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. But her teaching, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, the opening of this letter does so, like many of the other letters, by beginning with a description of Jesus. And then it moves to a commendation of the church. What was the church commended for? And then in this particular letter, as most of these seven letters, it begins to move into an area of correction. That's the the sequence that we get. That's kind of the order of what we get. And then he gives them instructions, tells them a warning of what we'll do if they don't get it right and what they do if they will turn around and they will repent or what they do if they will hang on if they haven't been in, in one of those areas and, and about the rewards that they will experience. And that's kind of the order of this letter. Jesus is concerned about this church. He's got things that were very good, but he's got other things 
that he needs to address. So let's begin with the description of Jesus, because I think it's really important for us to understand. Revelation 2 and verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. As we begin with this description of Jesus, we find that it mirrors something that Jesus revealed to John himself back in chapter 1. So if you look at the description that Jesus gives to John in chapter 1, you will see some similarities. How many know that if you start with a controversial subject, something like tolerance, if you take a look at a controversial subject and you say, well, do I put up with that or don't I put up with that? Do I hold a conviction or don't I hold a conviction? What do I do? How many of you know you always have to start with Jesus? Right? So before he addresses anything, we've got to start with Jesus. If you start talking about the military, you start talking about politics, and there is certainly a whole lot of that going on today. You talk about culture. If you talk about lifestyle... If you talk about orientation, if you don't start with Jesus, you're going to get confused. Because everybody and anybody has an opinion on what it ought to be and what the truth is. So can we just get it straight that if we want to know what the truth is, we've got to start with who? Jesus. And why do I say that? If you're somebody that's not a believer today, if you've come in and you, you're not a believer in Jesus, I want you to understand that the message that Jesus is speaking to today, he's speaking to the church. That means people who, who have claimed that Jesus Christ is their Savior, that they've been born again, and that they're a part of his church, that they have an identity, they identify themselves as a Christian or as a believer. So I want you to understand that there, although there are truths here that may impact you, Jesus in his address and the way he writes is writing to believers. So church, if you're a believer today, this is for you. And that's why I say that if you're going to ask the questions as a believer, what is truth? Is it what our culture says or is it this or is it that? You can't address the area of tolerance without starting with Jesus. Because all over the place, in times and places and everything, there are different cultural preferences, different cultures, different lifestyles, different this and that. And so Jesus establishes an authority here in which he speaks. And the title he establishes is the majesty of his person and the authority of his position. The church belongs to Jesus. How many of you know that? Jesus is the one who then has the right to say whether what you and I do individually or collectively is obedient or disobedient. Who gets to say that? Jesus does. Jesus does. And that's why he starts. He starts this way. Why does Jesus get to do that? Well, we just had the elements, right? Why does Jesus get to speak authority? Why does Jesus get to determine what is right and what is wrong? What is obedience and what is disobedience? Because Jesus went to the cross. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. And Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father. Now, if you can tell me that you did that, then I'll start to listen to you. But I know that's not true. Jesus did what nobody else did. So Jesus can say what nobody else can say. Let's just get it right from the beginning. So he brings some, 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 some commendation and correction. And, and what we need to understand here is that the church in Thyatira, Jesus is Jesus' church. Painesville Assembly of God is Jesus' church. It doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter how we feel. It doesn't matter how we vote, what we vote. This is not a democratic. This is a theocracy, all right? So Jesus gets the last vote. It doesn't matter how many of us vote this way or that way on an issue. It's Jesus. And he's typified in two ways, bronze feet. 
Thyatira had a lot of bronze workers. They'd make weapons of war out of bronze. Showing here Jesus is immovable, unshakable, and, and, and faith is built on a sure foundation. Secondly, eyes like fire. You know what that means? Jesus sees all. Jesus knows all. He, he doesn't have a perspective or an ideology like we do. He doesn't have his own interpretation. He sees the truth. He knows the truth. He says the truth. And in John 14, 6, he says, I am the truth. I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am truth. So truth is in Jesus. That's, that's what we have to start with. So, so it's important today because everyone has their own version and own convictions, and, and own, everything is relative according to that. Well, in, as, as a believer, when you, when you submit your life to Jesus Christ, it is no longer subjective. It's no longer about what you think or don't think. It's about what he says. He has the final say. And so when it comes to the sake of tolerance and how we ought to and what we ought to tolerate and what we don't, we've got to start with the authority of Jesus. And Jesus reminds the church in the beginning of who he is. Secondly is the commendation. Revelation 2.19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Now, how many of you know it's a good thing if you're going to correct somebody, if you can, to begin with a little bit of encouragement? That kind of softens the blow a little bit, doesn't it? Kind of makes us a little bit more receptive. And he says, listen, I do. I know all and I see all. And here's some things that I see about you that you're doing. Well, you're a church that is loving. You're a church that is faithful. You're a church that is serving. You're a church that is persevering. And not only that, but you, didn't, you aren't just doing that, but you're doing it better than you did at first. So different, different than the church in Ephesus that said, you know what, you have all this, but I've, you've left your first love. What they are doing, they are actually doing better than they did at first. So there's some growth. We would say, hallelujah, this is a good church. There's some growth in this church, man. There's some growth in this church. And I think when we talk about the area of tolerance, what we have to understand is, is that these very qualities that they're commended for can also lead them over into error when it comes to tolerance. Why do I say that? Because they're a loving church. They're a loving church. They're considered to be loving. And how many of you know that if you're not tolerant, sometimes you're considered unloving? The church was commended for their love. They were commended for their faith. They were all about, I'm going to serve you. I want to serve you. I'm going to serve you. So they're starting out with some very good things. And, and that, is, that is what Jesus did. While he was on earth, he fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He welcomed a, friend, a friendship with people who were the outside of, and marginalized of society. The children and the women and the ostracized. The, the lepers that nobody else wanted to be around. Jesus brought them in. The tax collectors and the sinners, the tax collectors were in their own, their own category. A part of being a Christian is living and serving in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's not miss that. Let's not miss that. In this area, what we're going to talk about today, let's not miss the importance. Jesus is not saying that what they were doing was wrong. He was commending them for it and saying, you're even doing, you're even doing it better than you did at first. You're growing. And these are good things. You have to be loving. You have to be serving. You have to have faith. You have to persevere. These are all good things. And these are the kinds of things that I am commending you for. Nevertheless, oh, sometimes that word is no good, right? How many of you remember, you know, you sit down and, you know, your parents bring you in and, you know, hey, we want to just let you know that, you know, we, 
we, we see, you know, we see you trying. And we, we know that you're, you know, you're, 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 you're really a good kid. I mean, we love you. But nevertheless, you, you are not getting the kind of grades you should be. Right? Nevertheless. Nevertheless, there are some things we got to work on. We don't, nevertheless, what is nevertheless? Can't we just stay right here? He says, nevertheless, 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 nevertheless. What's he saying, nevertheless? I'm skipping a slide, by the way. I realized that because I didn't do the message part here. Message is good. Let's go back to slide number seven. I see everything you're doing for me. Impressive. This is how the message puts it. The love, the faith, the service, and persistence. Yes, very impressive. You get better at it every day. Man, that's good. Can we camp there? Can't we camp there? No, nevertheless. Switch to the NIV. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality, eating food sacrifice dials. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Nevertheless, nevertheless, he commends them, and then he corrects them. He commends their actions, but corrects their doctrine. Doctrine is something I believe. Theology is, so to speak. And, and, and this is the teaching. Listen, listen, you, your, your actions, some of the things you're doing are well, but your teaching is wrong. And what you're putting up with in terms of teaching is wrong. The, 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 this teaching cannot continue. And, and so tolerance that we deal with today that's elevated as a virtue is not a new issue today. Tolerance is not a new issue. How many know that Satan and his demons are at war against believers? Been like that for centuries. And Satan is good. How does he deceive us? It's not right outright all the time. He begins to deceive us into tolerating, into tolerance, and into compromise. Why? How do we do that? By a misuse of love and grace and mercy. He's good at, at twisting and confusing the gifts and the virtues of Jesus Christ. And we're doing virtuous things and we struggle to know, oh, what do I do here? How do I do? How can I, how can I be loving and how do I still hold to a conviction? How, how do I do this? What do I do? How can I do this in the midst of a culture that doesn't believe in Jesus and doesn't hold to the Bible? How can I hold my convictions and still be loving? How can I tolerate? What do I tolerate? What don't I tolerate? And he says, hold on, hold on, nevertheless. Here's a problem, you're teaching, you're tolerating something that I don't tolerate. So as we unpack this, we've got to start with who's Jezebel? You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself, who's Jezebel? Well, Jezebel is a type of person. If we look back in the Old Testament, we see a character by the name of Jezebel. But here in Revelation, it's not the actual person Jezebel, nor do I believe that that was actually the person's name who was the prophet. Most commentators agree that that's probably not their name, but it's more of a type of person, like a Judas. When you say you're a Judas, it's not necessarily Judas. The person's name isn't Judas, but you know they are somebody that betrays, kind of like a Benedict Arnold, right? And, and Satan is, is good at, at getting us to... To compromise. So who was Jezebel? Well, Jezebel, this actual woman, she lived in the Old Testament during the days of Elijah. And through a desire to make peace, the Israelite king by the name of Ahab married this pagan woman Jezebel from another nation, made her queen. Why? Because he wanted to kind of, uh, that was the way that nations would come together and try to make peace between nations so they wouldn't go to war through marriage. And so he marries who he shouldn't be marrying. He marries a woman who, who is not an Israelite. She does not believe or hold to that Jehovah is God. In fact, she comes from an area that serves uh, Baal. It was Baal worship. 
And that's where she comes from. She comes from this area of Baal worship. And so as she comes in, she's a very powerful queen, a very powerful woman. She had political authority. She had spiritual authority. And she had financial ability. And so what she did is, you know what? I don't like all of these prophets of God. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to wipe them out and kill them all. And I'm going to raise up my own prophets who will, who will be prophets to my God. To my God, Baal. To my God, Asher, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise up for myself prophets, and I'm going to kill all the other prophets. And so they started to go into hiding, if you, if you look at it all. And, and, and so what she decided to do is, is listen, I, 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 we, need to, we need to have an alternative spirituality. This, this, this God of Israel, I mean, he, he's okay. Uh, I mean, he's got some good things, but he can't be the only way. That's not tolerant. There's got to be other ways. There's got to be other ways. And so he begins, she begins to, to open it up and, and into some alternative spirituality, a new religion, a cult, an offshoot of biblical faithfulness. You can be new, involved, enlightened, spiritual ideology. You know, it's going to be a little bit more tolerant, a little bit more diverse, a little bit less historical, and a little bit less biblical. And so she encouraged the worship of a false god, a demonic god, idolatry, Baal worship. Baal worship. So she starts her own religion, and then she starts her own Bible college, her own seminary, so to speak, and she raises up prophets of Baal, and she begins to integrate the worship that would, that would be sacrificed, these kinds of things that would be biblical worship. She integrates them with Baal worship in something that we call syncretism. And if you don't know what syncretism is, a synchronized faith is a kind of a, a compromised faith, a hyphenated faith. It's a diluted faith. It's kind of a both and. You can have both and. You don't have to make a choice. It's both and. It's not either or. You can kind of blend the two, kind of mix it up, kind of put your own recipe together because we're tolerant. It's kind of whatever you want, and let's just mix it all up. And I've got to be honest with you today that we might look at this and go, well, what does that have to do with the church of today? But, but as, I, as I, maybe my perception is off, but as I look around at the church of today, particularly the church in America, because of the pressures culturally, because of the pressures politically, because of the pressures that we face uh, entertainment wise and from all of these spokespeople that, 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 that are just really great at acting and really great at sports that decide that they're going to speak out on issues that they really have no business speaking out on but we believe them because they're famous we have found a way to mix what the Bible says and what the popularity of our culture says and we found a way to say, well, the Bible might be too strong over here. I don't know that I, I don't know that I want to hold that strong because that strong kind of makes people like think that I really am not loving and that I'm kind of a hating person. I'm kind of narrow-minded. I'm I'm kind of I'm I'm kind of archaic. I'm kind of old. But but here, this is popular. So maybe we need to kind of change and soften this a little bit so that we can be a little bit more loving and a little bit more open and a little bit more accepting over here so that we're not we're not kind of shaking things up so much politically speaking and so we find a way to mix and match Ooh, i like this Ooh, i don't like this Ooh, i like this oh i don't like syncretism 
And you see, when it comes to, 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 to the teaching, and that's what we're talking about, the teaching, this Jezebel who calls herself, she was self-appointed. She may have been a leader. We don't know. She may not have been a leader. I don't, I don't know if she started out as a leader, whatever it was, but somehow her message was gaining traction. And even if people didn't fully enter into what she was teaching, they were putting up with it and allowing it to be taught and allowing many people to begin to follow in a teaching where she was leading people astray. Why was it gaining such popularity? How can something like sexual immorality and idolatry, and you would look and we would go, how, how is that put up with? How, wait a minute, why didn't they deal with that? Why? Well, I think there's two reasons Jezebel's teaching were popular. The first is this. Most theological problems are moral problems in disguise. The reason her teaching was so popular it's not because uh, biblical, but because they were allowing, it, allowing people to compromise sexually into sexual sin. Most theological problems are moral problems in disguise. What I mean by this is often we tolerate teachings that are not biblical because down deep we don't want to admit that it's sin. The problem is not an outside action issue. The problem is really a heart issue. We don't want to hold a standard because oftentimes we don't want to change our own patterns of sin. We don't want to admit that something is wrong. We want to affirm something and say, well, this is normal. This is just normal. This is how everybody acts. This is what everybody does. Everybody does this. I mean, look around. This is what everybody does. If we, why can't we do this? Everybody does this. I mean, that's why it's got to be right because everybody's doing it. Everybody's jumping off the bridge. My mom used to tell me when I'd say, everybody's doing it. She said, if everybody jumped off a bridge, would you do it? She listens to this, by the way. I love you, mom. But the truth is, that, that's what we want. Underlying the idea of, of what it is, we want to normalize it. Our culture says, don't have sex outside of marriage. Don't view pornography. Uh, you know, but wait a minute, I'm a sexual being. I, you know, I was, I, was, I, was, I was given all of these things. I mean, this was put in me. You don't understand. I got all this testosterone in me, you know, and all this. And, you know, somewhere, I mean, there's got to be something. I mean, come on, that's just kind of old school. Don't, don't have sex before marriage. I mean, come on, they're outside of marriage. I mean, yeah, maybe that was like that when my grandparents were, you know, way back then but come on today that's just this is just this is the way it is today I mean you just gotta that, 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 the Bible's just outdated on this subject no alright there it is you want to know how I feel on it no we just gotta give you a pill go ahead and do whatever you want here's a pill here's a way here's this here's that you don't like it, just get rid of it. Abortion. I know, I know, you can, but what about rape? What about this? What about that? What about it? You're uncompassionate. No, I'm not. We can have a conversation about that, all right? I, I, I want to get it, but ultimately, what it comes down to is, is it's not a theological issue. Most of the time, it's a moral issue. 
We don't want to deal with the sin in our own hearts. We don't want to deal with the real problem. The root of the problem is really rebellion against God. The root of the problem is I don't want to come under the description and the authority of Jesus Christ. I love it when things are going wrong in my life and I want Jesus to fix it all. But meanwhile, I'm going to live my life however I want to live my life outside of biblical principles but expect him to bless me anyway. It doesn't work like that. Nor is it rub the genie, all right? You can, you can follow everything biblically and still go through difficult times. Ask Job. It's not about that. But at the same time, there are some of us that want to pick and choose when we want God to be involved in our lives. We want to pick and choose when we want a prayer life. And when we want God out of our lives, stay off to the side, stay out of my business, let me do all of this moral stuff that I don't want to do because I want you to agree with it. But then when things aren't going well, come back into my life, fix it. I know this is not an easy message. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, why did I come to church today? If I wanted to be depressed, I'd watch the Browns. Don't worry, 425, you'll have an opportunity. No, why was Jezebel so influential? Because her, her message tickled the ears of those who wanted to remain in disobedience but still feel like they were normal and like they were okay. Secondly, her message was so popular because when you hold conviction, there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay for faithfulness. The church in Thyatira was in a situation similar to that of Pergamum that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Thyatira was a smaller city, a military outpost whose social and commercial life centered around various trade guilds. And that's what we have here. There was a, in Thyatira, there was a, a trade guild. It was like a, a union, a group of people who traded together, negotiated together, who socialized together, who worshiped together. Being a part of these guilds meant that they would have these feasts. And they would have these feasts to honor their patron deity. And so they said, well, our patron deity is the one, who, who is the, is the one who's making all of this success possible, who's, who's going to keep our businesses running well, who's going to keep everything going. And Kind of like you want your team to do well, you wear the same socks or the same shirt or the same underwear all the time, and you think that somehow that's going to make your team do better. You know, I mean, it's that kind of a thing. So we need to have these feasts, and these feasts are going to honor the gods who are doing all of this and letting all of this go. And, and, and you know what? So if you're a part of, you're going to work here, and if you're going to play a part of this union, you're going to pay dues, and you're going to attend these feasts. And here's these feasts. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to sacrifice. And, and so there's going to be meat that's been sacrificed to these idols. And, and you know, we're going to have a feast. And, and you're going to partake in this feast. And, and then afterwards, we kind of like to wife swap a little bit afterwards. And we kind of like to, you know, have some, some orgies and revelry. And that's kind of a part of our partying as we get ourselves all drunk and crazy and everything like that. And, and so that's a part of it. You can be a part of these guilds. You know, and if your family, you know, your family has a wedding, you have the guild. You have the, all the people. If your funeral, you have the guild. And a lot of coworkers and friends of yours are a part of it. They're, they're, you know, th th this is one of those things where they say, hey, all of a sudden, hey, pay your dues. Uh, you know, I don't like where the money's going. Show up the feast. Worship our pagan demonic God. No, no, no. I, you know, I, I, I don't really worship like that. I can't, I can't eat and drink like that. I can't, I can't do those kinds of things. Hold on. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't you realize this guilt, the, this guilt, this is, this is where your income comes from. This is where your benefits come from. This is where your, this is, this is where your support comes from. You, you, don't, you don't do this. You don't work. You don't come to this. You, you don't pay your dues. You don't work. 
You, you don't do this, your family's going to turn its back on you. You don't do this, you're going to become destitute. You're going to be bent poor. And so this woman, Jezebel, her teaching said, well, come on, you can have both. I mean, God doesn't want you to be poor. So, you know, go ahead, you participate in that and just come to church. Just come to church and you can confess all of that and you'll be okay. But go do that. But then afterwards, just come to church. And after all, you've got to be able, to, you, gotta be able to, to, you know, to make a living. And so go ahead, you can, you can have both. I'll, I'll, I'll give money to the guild and I'll give money to my church. I'll come to the church and hear about sexual purity, and then I'll go to a crazy event and fornicate a little bit. Absolutely nobody's perfect. Maybe I won't, but, you know, I'll kind of put up with it and tolerate it a little bit. I don't know. Maybe it's kind of like this. Dear student, your grade point average will probably go down if you raise your hand for Jesus on your campus. Dear middle manager, you may not get promoted if you raise your hand for Jesus in your place of work. Senior executive, you may lose some money, status, power if you raise your hand for Jesus. Listen, tolerance and this kind of thing doesn't mean that we impose our faith on others, but we should propose our faith to others. The difference is not legislating our faith, but it's an invitation. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. It's an invitation. And they'll say, well, can you bless this? Can you participate in this? You know what? No, you know what? I I love you. I do, but I can't. I can't participate in that. I can't do that. I won't do that. But the truth is, you know what, I love you, but I love Jesus more. I love you, but I love Jesus more. I've got to be faithful to Jesus. But guess what? You can clap, but it's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you relationships. It's going to cost you opportunities. There is a cost to following Jesus. It's not popular to preach that message in the church. But there is a cost to following Jesus. There is a cost to following Jesus. The problem is, is that sometimes we become more tolerant than Jesus is. We become more tolerant than Jesus is. And Jesus says to them, listen, I, I have given her an opportunity to repent, meaning this Jezebel. and this, I've given her an opportunity to repent, but it hasn't come. And because it hasn't come, I'm moving to judgment. Jesus will give us an opportunity to repent. He gives us an opportunity to repent. For Thyatira, they were good at loving. They were good at serving people. They were good at faithfulness. Man, they were really good at hugging people. But the problem was they were hung in wolves who were influencing people to sin and encouraging people to compromise their biblical values. And Jesus was telling, listen, I don't want you to stop loving and I don't want you to stop hugging. Just stop hugging wolves. Now, let me say this. I'm going to wrap it up, okay? Christianity begins with tolerance but moves to repentance. How many of you love Billy Graham? Anybody love Billy Graham? I love Billy Graham. When Billy Graham would give the altar call, just as I am, just as I am, just as I am. Why? Why is it just as I am? Because it begins, it begins. There's a beginning point with tolerance where we love and where we, where we, where we tolerate, where we, where we begin to allow people the invitation to come to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the one who what? Who changes us. Come to me and I'll change. Come to me, all who are weary. Come to me just as I am. Dr. J.I. Packer once said Christianity is about repentance. And anytime we don't practice repentance of our sin or preach repentance for other sins, we're heretics because Christianity is about repentance. Christianity presumes we're wrong. I know that is so hard for us. I'm wrong? 
I got to admit, I, I got to admit there's wrong, I'm wrong? Christianity presumes we're wrong and we need to change our mind. It presumes that we're doing wrong and our behavior needs to change. And so Christianity starts with tolerance, but it doesn't end there. It starts with come as you are, come as you are, and I'm about to change you. We never call people to repentance if we never call, excuse me, if we never call people to repentance, if we never say the way you're thinking is wrong, the way you're acting is wrong, the lifestyle you've chosen is wrong, the identity you've embraced, the actions you celebrate are the ones you should be mourning, then we really are not Christians. We're no longer faithful. Those in our culture may cheer us on, but Jesus will rebuke and says, nevertheless, I have this against you, you tolerate. Revelation 2.22, so I'll cast her on a bed of suffering and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. Listen, Jesus is all about repentance, friends. It's all about repentance. This means we don't change God. God changes us. We don't look in God and say, well, you know what, God? Your ways in here, they're outdated. God, you know what? You really got to get culturally relevant. You know what, God, I don't know, but this just doesn't seem to, to give me any kind of a footing. I don't know where I, I just think you gotta, you got to adjust some things in here. You know, people got their shortcomings. you got, you got to adjust some things, these problems. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. You didn't come to change me. I've come to change you. The root issue, as I said, is really authority. Who's going to be God? Jesus says, repent. That means change your mind. Thinking wrong about this. And I don't care if you went to Bible college or you went to seminary or you went to Sunday school your whole life or you read all kinds of books and you took a vote or you, you went on Facebook and you said, I'm going to take a poll. Is this right or wrong? Does God say this is right or wrong? What do you say? I don't care about your poll. Go get everybody's opinion all you want. The only opinion that matters is God's. Because ultimately, he's the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, and he's the one we're going to answer to. Becomes less about changing the word of God and more about God's word changing us. Goes on to say that all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds. I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you and who do not hold to her teaching. There are some that didn't. And have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious, does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, so also I am the one that gives the morning star. I am the one, uh, excuse me, that one, the morning star. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what do we learn? If you repent, you'll be rewarded. If you repent, if you repent, the grace of God is there. If you repent, the grace of God is for you. The mercy of God is for you. What does repent mean? It means I have to change. That God is going to bring change into my life. It says, Lord, I admit, this is the first part, the first part. How do we repent? The first part, I'm wrong. The way I've been living is wrong. The way I've been thinking is wrong. God, you're not wrong. I'm wrong. That's where repentance begins. 
I'm wrong. I'm wrong. And then it moves on from there. Lord, I want, need you to change me. I need you to make me more like you. I need you to make me more like you. And that's what repentance. He says, if you repent, you'll be rewarded. Secondly, there is justice and judgment. He talks here about the, the sexual sin. He says, I'm going to put her on. She has a, a sexual sin that leads to, to some kind of bed. I'm going to put her on a sick bed. That's hard for us to understand, a hospital bed. Spiritual adultery leads to death, and it leads to war with God. What do I mean? If you take a look up here, he says that the one will rule them with an iron scepter, will dash them to pieces like pottery. The language here is, is an imagery language. When the nations would go to war, the king would assemble his people, and he would take a vase. He would take a, a jar made out of clay, and he'd write the name of the opposing king and kingdom on it, and then as an act publicly of de declaring war, he would slam it to the ground and it would shatter into a million pieces. And that meant off to war we go. Listen, when you sin, here's what you're saying. I'm declaring war on God. And Jesus is saying, if you don't repent, I'm going to write your name on this and we're going to war. We're going to war. It's very serious. God is loving. God is holy. God is loving. You know why? Because he was holy and he recognized that in our own way, in, in, in our own behavior, in our own actions, we could never be holy enough. There was nothing that we could do that could make up for the sin gap that we had. So what did God do? Did he compromise his holiness? Did he tolerate our sinfulness and look the other way? No. He satisfied his holiness through Jesus Christ. He is loving because through Jesus Christ, who gave his life, he said, you know what? I will pay. I will see through my son. The penalty of sin will be, will be through my son on that cross, through his death and, his, and, and through his shed blood on the cross. Through the cross, he will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Through my son, I will satisfy my wrath and my anger. Through my son, I will satisfy my judgment so that I will remain holy to my standard and I will allow my son who didn't deserve it who was sinless but to take on the sin of the world that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ will be made right so I am holy but I am loving because I am giving my son my son will give his life for you and I will remain holy so we come as we are and then we allow Jesus Christ to make us like the Father. But the problem is, is that our society has encouraged us to tolerate what Jesus doesn't tolerate. And I, again, this is a message for the church. People who do not know Christ, who have not come to Christ, will live their own way. But when you've come to Christ, don't be bringing that in. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but you're living in sexual immorality, you've got a problem. Repent or get right with Jesus. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, but what you are doing or what you are thinking or what you are believing does not line up with Scripture, you need to repent and get right with God. 
This is not the unbeliever. The unbeliever, salvation. Let Jesus do the work. If you're a believer, my question is, what have you been compromising? What have you been tolerating that Jesus doesn't tolerate? And for that, it's time to repent. So that's what I'm calling the church to. Do you need to repent of your sin? Do you need to repent of your sin? What have you allowed in your life? Do you compromise at work because you don't want to pay the price of holding the convictions of Scripture? Let's repent today and let the Lord purify us. Let's bow our heads today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I know today was a heavy message today. Please understand that as your pastor, I am not angry. I am wanting to help share the word of God that we might, as a church, begin to root out sin. Root out, root out, and I'm not talking about when we just slip and fall. I'm talking about behaviors, actions, a, a, a mindset that is against what God's word says. And as a church, we need to repent as a church, we need to ask ourselves, what is it that we need to repent of? What is it that we need to get right with God? And I just want to ask you today, what is it in your life that you need to get right with God? What is in your life that you are tolerating? What is in your life that you are compromising? What is it that you, you say, you know what? I got to stop fighting and I need to, I need to, let, I need to begin to, to let Jesus change me change me do you need to repent today in a few moments I'm going to pray and I know that many of you may be dismissed today but there are some here that you may need to come and do some business with God around these altars you may need to take a few extra minutes today to let the Lord deal with you and to Begin to repent and begin to mourn over your sin. Over the things that you've come to believe. Jesus, forgive us. Jesus, we repent today. It's so easy to fall into compromise. It's so easy to justify our sin. It's so easy sometimes to slip into tolerating sin in our lives that you don't tolerate. So today we come and we repent. Today we come and we ask you, Lord, to change us. We ask you, Lord, to come in and to bring about change in areas, Lord, where we are being disobedient to you. We ask, Lord, for your conviction today. Not condemnation, but your conviction, the conviction of your Holy Spirit. And we repent today of our sin. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We come and we surrender our lives to you. We owe all to you. We owe all to you. We surrender 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 to you. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I'm going to ask you to stand. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We pray that you are encouraged and strengthened by God's word. For more information about Painesville Assembly of God, please visit PainesvilleAG.com.